You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, February 17th. I'm Lucy Grindin. And I'm Julian Abraham. Piles of trash are an increasingly common sight on New York sidewalks. So the city has a plan, move its garbage to the street. But that means another problem, less parking. It's really difficult. It's something you have to plan your whole day around. Yeah, I mean, I wish there were no drivers in the city except for me. Homeless New Yorkers receive vouchers for housing costs, but they say discriminatory landlords won't accept the checks. You're you're looking at the check and you're like, oh, I got all this money, da da da, and I'm gonna use this money, and then you go to cash the check and it says, oh. And it can be tough to find love in New York City, and even tougher for devout Christians. So some are looking to the church to play matchmaker. So if any men are Christians and listening to this, we've got like a lot of eligible women here. All this and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The growing prospect of war in Eastern Europe is prompting new warnings from the U.S. today. President Biden and his top security advisors are all flagging information pointing to Russian military escalation at Ukraine's doorstep. Underscoring the urgency, NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports, Secretary of State Antony Blinken went before the United Nations Security Council, of which both the U.S. and Russia are permanent members. In a last-minute change in his travel plan, Secretary Blinken stopped at U.N. headquarters in New York to lay out the dangers of the current situation around Ukraine. I am here today not to start a war, but to prevent one. The information I presented here is validated by what we've seen unfolding in plain sight before our eyes for months. He says Russia has 150,000 troops nearly surrounding Ukraine and Russian media have started to spread disinformation that could provide a pretext for a Russian attack. Blinken is urging his Russian counterpart to meet him in Europe next week. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. The Biden administration has warned that an invasion against Ukraine would have global ramifications. The fears are reflected in the markets. The Nasdaq Composite Index has closed down or is about to close down 2.8 percent or more than 400 points. President Biden was in Ohio today plugging the bipartisan infrastructure law. NPR's Asma Khalid reports Democrats see the president's travels as a way to tout their accomplishments ahead of the midterm election, while most of the president's other priorities are stuck in Congress. Democrats are hoping that selling specific pieces of the infrastructure law could help their party this November. This trip brought the president to Ohio near Lake Erie to tout a $1 billion investment that will help clean up and protect the Great Lakes. It's going to allow the most significant restoration of the Great Lakes in the history of the Great Lakes. The president says this infrastructure money will allow the government to accelerate cleanup across six states. From Duluth, Minnesota to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Gary, Indiana, Buffalo, New York, and everywhere in between. We know these sites were dangerously polluted for decades. The lakes are a major source of recreation and drinking water. Asma Khalid, NPR News. The Trump family's lost its latest bid to get subpoenas from the office of New York's Attorney General dismissed. Today, State Supreme Court Judge Arthur Engeron denied a motion by former President Donald Trump and his children, Donald and Ivanka Trump. They're all under court order to appear for depositions within 21 days in a civil investigation of the ex-president's business affairs. Trump's lawyers can still appeal. New York Attorney General Letitia James' office is also conducting a criminal investigation into the Trump organization. The Dow is down more than 600 points. S&P falls 94 points or more than 2%. NASDAQ is down 2.8%.
From Columbia Radio News, I'm Rebecca Robinson. Mayor Eric Adams has released his preliminary budget for the 2023 fiscal year. Most city agencies will see a 3% cut as the city government works to decrease its overall spending. New York City public schools will face budget cuts over the next few years as they grapple with a pandemic-related decline in student enrollment. The mayor's preliminary budget does not plan to increase police spending. Other agencies that are protected from budget reductions include the Correction Department and the Health Department. Governor Kathy Hochul has announced today a new grant proposal to transition workers from marginalized communities into clean energy jobs. The grant seeks $25 million in support from the federal government. This initiative is part of New York State's ongoing commitment to fighting climate change as outlined in the Climate Act from 2019. A New York State judge ruled this afternoon that former President Trump and his children must appear to testify in an ongoing case about the Trump Organization's finances. The Trumps are required to testify in the case within the next 21 days. The court also ruled that the former president and his children, Ivanka and Donald Jr., must provide documents as required by subpoenas issued by the state attorney general. New York State lawmakers yesterday passed a bill that would expand the licensing process for cannabis cultivation and distribution. The new rules would allow growers to apply for licenses to grow marijuana in greenhouses or to cultivate plants outdoors. Other rules go into effect in 2023 would allow cannabis products to be sold. The legislation also includes requirements that growers participate in social equity and environmental sustainability initiatives. The bill will now go to Governor Hochul for consideration. Dancing dragons and firecrackers will dazzle Chinatown this weekend. The city's Lunar New Year parade and festival returns. New Yorkers will take to Lower Manhattan to ring in the Year of the Tiger. It's 63 degrees and sunny in Upper Manhattan. Tomorrow, we can expect a high of 58 degrees, but look out for a temperature drop and a possibility of snow showers this weekend. Rebecca Robinson, Columbia Radio News. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Julian Abraham. And I'm Lucy Grindon. The New York Democratic Party held its 2020 state convention today at Sheraton Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. It nominated Senator Chuck Schumer and Governor Kathy Hochul to be its standard bearers in, a, in June's primary election. Our reporter Mark Gilchrist was there. Mark, what was the scene like at the event? I'd call it a superstar event if you're a political junkie. Nearly all of the big-name Democratic Party officials were in attendance. A crowd of hundreds of delegates and members of the press crowded into a huge ballroom to hear speeches by basically every elected official in the state. We heard from Senators Chuck Schumer and Kirsten Gillibrand, Lieutenant Governor Brian Williams, and Attorney General Letitia James. There was also a rousing keynote speech by Hillary Clinton. And then the delegates did what everyone expected. They nominated Governor Kathy Hochul to be their candidate for governor, making her the first woman in New York history to be nominated by any major party to the New York governorship. Now, at least two other prominent Democrats have said they want to run for governor. Governor, What happened to them at the convention? Uh, Congressman Tom Suosi and New York City public advocate Jumane Williams both started to campaign for governor. They have argued that Kathy Hochul is from upstate Buffalo and that perhaps the Democrats should nominate someone closer to New York City. But there is no indication at all at the convention today that, there were, that the two were running. The other candidates did not speak to the delegates. They did not appear to have any clear supporters in attendance. They did not even have any posters up. It was as though they had been erased by the party leaders at the event. The only posters, buttons, and t-shirts I saw were from the Kathy Hochul for Governor campaign. In a way, this seemed a bit of a coronation for Governor Hochul. There really was almost no competitive buzz or drama at all. 
Now, I was wondering if you could explain to me what happens next. Uh, this, there's a primary in June, so voters do get their say. What is the point of the convention if there's going to be a primary? Yes, it's weird. The party delegates and officials choose its nominees for different offices before the primary election takes place. This is the opposite of most states. The Democratic Party officials' choices automatically go on the ballot in June. The other Democratic candidates not chosen can still run, but they have to accumulate large numbers of signatures to get on the ballot, and that's expensive and time-consuming. So does this mean that Governor Hochul does not have the nomination in the bag? Yes, if the voters in June decide to select one of the other candidates, if they are able to get on the ballot, then that candidate, if selected, would end up running as a Democratic candidate in the November election. This whole system is meant to give the most loyal party faithful a say first, but it really looks like a remnant of the old days when party leaders chose the candidate and there were no primaries. But today, overall, was a good day for Governor Hochul? Oh, yes, it was. The governor has been able to quickly get nearly all of the party's establishment behind her. She's also raised nearly $20 million in just a few months. That gives her a formidable war chest to go into primary and general elections. The betting money is on her. Mark Gilchrist, reporter for Columbia Radio News. Mark, thank you for talking with us. You're welcome. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Julian Abraham. And I'm Lucy Grindon. Friday was the deadline for New York City employees to get their first dose of a COVID-19 vaccine or risk losing their jobs. And almost 1,500 workers were fired. But according to the New York Times, about 9,000, or about 2.5% of the city's workforce, are still unvaccinated. Many have been able to keep their jobs because they've requested medical exemptions. Dr. Jessica Justman is a professor of epidemiology at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. I asked her, what are the reasons why people would receive medical exemptions from vaccine mandates, and how common are they? They're very rare. They would consist of allergies to vaccine subcomponents, vaccine ingredients, I should say, and a severe adverse reaction to an initial vaccination. These are things that are, let me just emphasize again, really rare. What are the chances that 9,000 city employees will actually end up getting medical exemptions? I, I think I think it's very uh, unlikely that 9,000 people have the kind of medical history that really would mean they have a valid reason to not not receive a vaccine. And even then, they might be unable to receive one kind of vaccine, but they could receive another kind of vaccine. We do have more than one kind of vaccine. And I guess, you know, my point of view as an infectious disease clinician, um, as well as an um, epidemiologist, public health um, expert, is I would look for ways to sit down and listen to the people who are getting fired, who don't want to get vaccinated, and try and help address their concerns so that they will feel more comfortable getting vaccinated and protecting their own health as well as protecting the health of others. Have you had a chance to talk to people who are vaccine hesitant or refusing to get these vaccines? And, and what have they said? I've had um, conversations with um, a college friend and one other person I know. My college friend is just terrified of, of the side effects. And no matter what kind of data I say, I, I, I you know supply all kinds of data to show how safe the vaccine is, it 
it never really actually moves the needle, so to speak. It doesn't change her opinion. And I finally said, you know, I, I think this is not so much about the data. It's about trust. The other person reached a decision, not with my intervention, but because her sister got vaccinated and her daughter got vaccinated and all of the people in her network got vaccinated and she could see that this was the way to go. So I do think that we are all influenced by the people that we know. Will vaccine mandates for COVID ever go away? I doubt it. No, I think I think they're they're here. Um, and they'll be enforced to differing extents depending on what your setting is, where you work. If you're a healthcare worker, healthcare workers um, must get influenza vaccines. There are some limited exceptions. I don't think anybody should have a gun to their head to get a vaccine. That would be too extreme. But I think, you know, all reasonable measures should be taken to have as, you know, large a segment of the population vaccinated as possible, because what we have come to learn over the last year of our experience with vaccines is that it protects people from the very severe outcomes of hospitalization and death. Um, but I think it will be um, very, very similar to the way um, flu vaccines are handled in some settings. Measles vaccines are handled in some settings. Dr. Jessman, thank you so much for being here and talking to us today. My pleasure. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Julian Abraham. And I'm Lucy Grindon. A new report confirms that many homeless families living in New York City shelters have been what they've been saying for decades, excuse me. When they try to use a city funding housing voucher to get out of a shelter and into an apartment, landlords can ignore their applications and don't return their calls. Natasha Bryant is 29 years old and lives in the Palladia Women's Shelter in Harlem. For over a year and a half, she's been hoping to move into her own apartment. It would mean a lot to me to be able to leave the shelter with the voucher and not be stuck in the system. Brian first entered the shelter to escape domestic violence, and now she hopes to use a city voucher program known as CityFEPS to rent her own place. She started shopping for apartments and submitting applications, but she immediately hit a roadblock. And unfortunately, when you contact these landlords and you mention that you have the voucher, they don't get back to you at all. Last week, a report was released by a coalition of New York City housing rights organizations. The report found that landlords use a variety of tactics to keep homeless people out of their rental units. Amy Blumsack is the director of organizing and policy at Neighbors Together, a nonprofit that helps homeless people find housing. Ghosting is an increasingly used tactic by landlords and brokers, so as soon as they find out that the person who's inquiring has some sort of voucher, they just completely cut off communication and the person never hears from them again. Landlords in New York are not permitted to discriminate against tenants based on the source of their income, including if they pay rent with housing vouchers from the city. I reached out to landlords for comment and they all declined to be interviewed. But off the record, they say accepting tenants paying with these city FEPS vouchers comes with a number of administrative hassles. 
Their buildings have to pass additional inspections, and rent payments can be late or even cut off entirely if tenants have issues with other social service programs. The anti-discrimination law is enforced by the New York City Commission on Human Rights. Among many other types of discrimination cases, the commission works to compel landlords to rent to tenants paying with vouchers. Alicia McCauley is a spokesperson for the commission. 177 times that was effective and the person got housing or, um, you know, they were able to retain their voucher or like the, the situation was amicably resolved. In cases where this doesn't work, the commission can also impose fines and require landlords to set aside units specifically for voucher holders. Amy Blumsack agrees that the Commission on Human Rights is often able to resolve individual cases of discrimination, but she says they are just overwhelmed by the number of cases citywide. And so we think it's really critical that New York City increase the baseline funding for the source of income unit specifically. Because otherwise people who are looking for housing are, they're stuck in homelessness longer. Natasha Bryant is still living in the shelter. She says she is holding out hope that a city voucher will be her ticket out of homelessness. Clara Sophia Daly, Columbia Radio News. There's a reason rent in New York City is so high. We just don't have enough space. And that includes space for trash, which often piles up on the sidewalks as a result. So the city says it has a plan. The so-called Clean Curbs program that promises to clear crowded sidewalks of giant black bags. But as Linnea Arden reports, that could mean another problem, fewer parking spots. Something's rotten in the city of New York. And during a lunch and Zoom break, Upper West Side resident Jessica Caracato says she's tired of it. There's this one building, like a couple buildings down from mine, that like eternally has a pile of trash in front of it and I have to walk around it every time because it takes up the whole sidewalk and it's spilling everywhere. All those trash bags create not just a pedestrian obstacle, but also a feast for rats. The city says it has a solution, moving the bags to containers on the curb. But streets have become increasingly crowded with city bike docks and outdoor dining. So while moving the trash would free up some much needed space, it adds to another age-old New York City problem, finding parking. It's really difficult. It's something you have to plan your whole day around. And I'm, my sister is my roommate, so sometimes we, like, if I've had it driving around in circles looking for parking over and over again, which, like, it can get up to an hour, sometimes I'll tap out and I'll be like, okay, you have to come and take the car now. Yeah, I mean, I wish there were no drivers in the city except for me. The city says its focus is on commercial waste, so the plan won't impact residential neighborhoods like Caracato's for a while. It also says the plan would lessen traffic and air pollution. Transportation planner Leon Fari has been consulting on the project. Because there were multiple companies that were coming to the same location by just like making the system more efficient, you're able to reduce the number of trucks and the number of miles that they've been going through uh, to collect the, and pick up the trash. Fari says the time and mileage could be reduced by 85%. The idea comes from programs that have worked in other cities, such as Barcelona. Buildings would propose the size and design of containers they need. The containers wouldn't just be more efficient, they'd hopefully smell better too. They're required to be sealed, non-flammable, and rodent-proof. Designs are also encouraged to include what the city calls street furniture, like bike racks and seating, providing some rest for weary New Yorkers. It's funny, as soon as they put something on the street in New York, someone will sit on it, you know, whether it's a um, barrier or, or a granite block. 
or, you know, a container full of trash. The city says the first containers could arrive later this year, but while Upper West Side resident Jessica Caracato says she'd be willing to give up a few parking spots to fix the trash problem, she's so fed up with finding parking, she's giving up her car. Linnea Arden, Columbia Radio News. Stevie Wonder, I got uh, Marvin Gaye, I got everything that people desire to come to see and listen. Ishmael Duet of Brooklyn, CD vendor. Uh, I believe that music, you know, helps people, you know, good for the soul. Uh, I listen to it every day, of course. Uh, I make a lot of them. I generate a lot of different kind of uh, music for the people to uh, see. To, hear, to enjoy. My thing is, once a person enjoy the music, you know, they enjoy their life, you know. And we're going through a whole lot of different changes right now with the COVID, and the music helps ease people's pain. You're listening to Uptown Radio from Columbia Radio News, Thursdays at 4 p.m. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Lucy Grindon. And I'm Julian Abraham. More to come. Stay with us. But first, these headlines. From Columbia Radio News, I'm David Marquez. In an unplanned speech at the UN, Secretary of State Antony Blinken warned that a Russian invasion of Ukraine is imminent. Secretary Blinken disputed Russia's claim that it was withdrawing some of its 150,000 troops from the Ukrainian border. Russia says it's drawing down those forces. We do not see that happening on the ground. Our information indicates clearly that these forces are preparing to launch an attack against Ukraine in the coming days. Tensions between Washington and Moscow continue to escalate. President Biden accused Russia of plans to use a false flag operation as pretext for an invasion. This comes after Kyiv and Moscow blamed each other for the shelling of a kindergarten building in eastern Ukraine. U.S. auto safety regulators have begun another probe into Tesla due to concerns over unexpected braking in autopilot mode. This is Tesla's third investigation by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration in six months. The agency received 354 phantom braking complaints about the automaker's models 3 and Y. Drivers worry about rear-end crashes at highway speeds. The last NHTSA probe was launched in August when Tesla cars and autopilot failed to stop for emergency vehicles. At least 105 people in Brazil are dead after mudslides tore through Petropolis, a city near Rio de Janeiro. A month's worth of rain fell on the city between Tuesday and Wednesday, sweeping away cars, houses, and people. At least 134 remain missing in the wreckage. The growth of informal settlements in the surrounding mountains makes mudslides more likely and residents more vulnerable. Experts also warn that global warming will increase the frequency of extreme weather events in southeastern Brazil. In 2011, more than 900 died in a similar disaster in the Rio metro area. Markets are sinking today as the situation in Ukraine remains volatile. The Dow is down 622 points and the S&P is down 94. David Marquez, Columbia Radio News. 
Today was supposed to be the second day of spring training for Major League Baseball, but players are involved in a labor dispute. They've been locked out by their league because of a disagreement over their contracts. To understand what's at stake, my co-host Julian talked with Joe Favorito, a sports media consultant and professor at Columbia. He says, although it's not your typical labor dispute, in some ways it's not so different from what happens in other industries. I mean, you know, you have millionaires talking to billionaires, um, and it's a you know the, the break of the collective bargaining agreement. So it expired in the, in the fall, uh, and now it's a question of who gets what and how the pie is broken up. It's it's really kind of sad but simple back and forth in, in labor negotiations. Whether you're talking about you know steel workers or professional baseball players. There has been other strikes in Major League Baseball history. The 1994-1995 season comes to mind. Some say that created a situation where baseball players did not want to strike again. Uh, I'm kind of wondering what brought that back? You know, why now? That was literally decades ago, and the business has changed. The amount of money coming into professional sports is, you know, continued to increase. There's new revenue streams. Uh, the players, I think, have become more vocal and more involved, and and they're looking for a bigger piece of the pie because they are the producers of, of what it is that goes on on the field and what fans want to have. The owners obviously view it in a little bit different way where, they, yes, of course, it's about the players, but they are taking the risk and, and look for more of the rewards. When I think of being a pro baseball player, it, it sounds like a great gig. I mean, a lot of kids kind of wake up every morning and dream of that becoming true. What have labor conditions historically been like for baseball players? Is it maybe not as good as of a gig as it sounds like? No, I think it's tremendously. I mean, if you get to major league baseball, it, it's um, it's the gold standard. I mean, there, there's you know, but it's it's a grind. I mean, it's the only sport where you are playing. You have very few days off from the end of February until the beginning of November. No other sport is like that because you're playing an extremely long 162 game schedule. And how do the fans respond to this? Um, I think we're going to see. I, I think the one thing that all the major leagues hopefully are learned have learned is during the pandemic when there was a hiatus from all sports, people found other things to do with their discretionary income. And it took a while for them to come back. There was a lot of question whether so many people would go to an NFL game this year. It worked out very well, especially with the quality of play and the parity that was in the NFL. But you've seen it in other leagues. National Hockey League has had some attendance issues. The NBA has had attendance issues. NASCAR has had attendance issues, although they will be sold out for Daytona this weekend. Um, and I think Major League Baseball, because of the amount of games, the fact that it's outside, the cost of going to games is prohibitive for, for many people. So I think you'll see people going, but I think people are going to think twice if the season is stopped. That was Joe Favorito, a sports media consultant and professor at Columbia. Harlem has a new public space. The city expanded the tiny park known as Montefiore Square. New grass, more seating. But the most interesting thing might be what's underneath it. Rebecca Robinson has more. The redesigned plaza slopes down along Broadway in West Harlem. Dozens of newly planted trees dot the grassy area and line the perimeter of the park. Sarang Sharma and his dog Candy just live across the street. Since we've been here for the last year and a half, this has all been blocked off, right? Now, like, this is her favorite place. I take her off leash and she just runs around on the grass. So she loves it. I love it. It's convenient. It's fun. But what he and Candy cannot see are the upgrades to the water infrastructure beneath the park. 
a vast network of water mains and storm drains. City parks might not seem like a danger to the environment, but bad park design can create problems. During Hurricane Sandy, New York City got soaked and rain overwhelmed parks, sending massive amounts of stormwater into the sewer system. It is a particular problem for areas with lots of sidewalks. And uh, on the many impervious surfaces that we have in urban areas, of course, the water has no chance to somehow settle or stand and then just slowly infiltrate into the ground. Dr. Mike Piasecki is a professor in the Civil Engineering Department at nearby City College of New York. His research covers everything related to water. And so at some point, all these masses of water sort of collect at a certain point, and very often the, the systems simply get overwhelmed. And by overwhelmed, he means that sewers fill up and send all that nasty stuff into the rivers. So when the city looked at redoing Montefiore Square, they tried to come up with ways to hold the water during storms, to keep it out of the sewer system until the rain stops. Jacob Glazer is an associate at SWA Balsley, the landscape architecture firm that redesigned the square. He served as project manager, and he says they dug deep under the park and installed giant tanks for rain. All projects now have uh, some element of stormwater detention, just to slow down the amount of water. After the tanks and their called retention basins are installed, they can put in grass and cobblestone. Professor Piasecki says that this kind of tank system will become more common. If I look at climate change and the changing weather patterns, you know, it is predicted that for the Northeast, we will have more rain coming our, our way. And not only more rain, but also more intense storms. And so, therefore, retention basins are a very important component of actually water management. An upgraded water management system helps to protect the local community from potential damaging floods. But parkgoer Jensi Cardi is more excited about the visible upgrades to the park. So now that it's reopened, it opens up to new things. I guess that, you know, it brings a lot of new joy to, to this area. And keeps a lot of bad stuff out of our river. Rebecca Robinson, Columbia Radio News. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Julian Abraham. And I'm Lucy Grindon. Mayor Adams says a plant-based diet saved his life. So back in 2019, when he was Brooklyn Borough President, he began a comprehensive health program, the Bellevue Plant-Based Lifestyle Medicine Program. The main focus, you guessed it, eating plants. That initiative is now being expanded citywide. But as Kelly Kennedy reports, getting New Yorkers to adopt plant-based diets could be challenging and not necessarily healthy. Dr. Chen is a professor of health behavior and community health at New York Medical College. She says getting New Yorkers, especially kids, to eat more plants could be tough. I, I think the only vegetable that many children eat are a single piece of lettuce on a burger, on a hamburger, or the French fries. So Chen says in order to get people to eat more plants, they need to transition. Because if you are trying to convince someone to go from like McDonald's, barbecue ribs, or fried chicken to, to eat a kale salad, steamed broccoli, and, you know, the baked sweet potato, you, you probably get punched on the face. She says one common strategy for persuading meat eaters to eat more plants is getting them to try popular meat alternatives like Beyond Meat. She says even her father, who's eaten meat his entire life, tried a Beyond Burger and was open to trying more plant-based foods. Of course, no one is going to switch from meat-based to plant-based in one day unless they are faced with some major motivator like Mayor Adam was. Another strategy is a so-called trickle-down theory. 
That's when in the hospital, patients experience delicious plant-based foods, and they're more likely to bring the diet home and serve it to their families. But Philippa Jewell, PhD, researches nutrition at NYU School of Public Health. And she says just because a diet is plant-based doesn't mean it's healthy. When we talk about a plant-based diet, I think it's really important to um, be clear about that it has to be a high-quality plant-based diet because obviously you could live on French fries and soda and that would be plant-based. Jewel also says that plant-based doesn't always mean vegan or vegetarian. It just means eating plants at the base and adding in high-quality meat on occasion. And she's wary of some meat substitutes. It's important to keep that in mind. And I think it's very important that people are not just reducing their meat intake and instead swapping in uh, very highly processed uh, meat alternatives. Uh, When we talk about a healthy plant-based diet, it really is um, a diet that is high in legumes such as beans and lentils and chickpeas, etc., whole grains, whole fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, etc. In other words, if you're eating a plant-based diet, you will still need to eat mostly veggies, the healthy ones. The city says the program will reach multiple hospitals, including Jacoby, Woodhall, Elmhurst, and Kings County this year. Kelly Canaday, Columbia Radio News. The dating scene in New York City is, to say the least, infamous. After two long years of online dating, bars and clubs are trying to get single New Yorkers off the dating apps and back into the real world. And they're not the only ones. Even churches are back to helping singles mingle. Clara Grun- Clara, excuse me, Clara Grunet reports. Luke Petri says he was saved when he was 15 years old. And he's never regretted finding Jesus. But during his teenage and young adulthood, it did make things difficult in the romance department. Growing up and being in the city, I kind of assumed for the most part that most people I interacted with weren't prospects. For five years, Luke didn't even go on a date. For a long time, he couldn't find someone he loved who also loved the Lord. That's until he went to a wedding, where he met Emily. Emily Petrie, previously Emily Delane. I haven't officially changed my name yet, so either one. Is that because you got married? Yeah, I just got married. To Luke. These two evangelical Christians got their fairy tale ending. And when the happy couple is asked for advice on how to find love as a practicing Christian in New York, they say there's a place. Church. In this case, Hope Hill Church on the Lower East Side. Instead of an altar is the setup of what looks like a pop concert. A keyboard, a couple of guitars, and a line of mics. If I were like to give someone advice on how to meet a Christian, I would say to just get plugged into a church. The music fades, and Luke stands up to give a sermon. As he is speaking, the young people on the front row are halfway listening and nodding in agreement, halfway whispering and showing each other text messages on their phones. The place feels like simultaneously one of worship and of socializing. After the sermon, Luke says the young people like the ones at today's service will come to him for Christian dating advice. There's so many questions people could have. Obviously, sex being something we believe is for marriage, but then how to approach any physical contact with people until the day you might get married, like what's right, what's wise. From the outside, it seems there is a tension between the secular symbol of New York City and a conservative Christian way of life. 
Sarah Hitchcock, a PhD candidate in religion at Columbia University, says that Christians have a history of coming to the city with an attitude that they're saving it. I think it's also important as an identity marker for especially conservative Christians, evangelicals living in the city to be able to say, I'm in the world, but not of the world. I live in this um, in this secular city, but here is how I am different from it and the work I'm doing to uh, to change what's around me. Whether or not it's in the pursuit of saving the city, many people are just out there trying to find the one, like Matt Broncado. I'm a bachelor right now. So you, are you looking in the church? Um, yes, I, I'd say I, I'm looking. Have you put the word out that you're single? <laughs> um, I think people know. <laughs> like in any dating situation, success is all about the numbers. The more people you meet, the better chance you have of finding love. As the Bible says in Matthew 7:7. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Or, as Emily Petrie from The Church puts it. We have like a de- deficit of men. So if any men are Christians and listening to this, we've got like a lot of eligible women here. Clark Ronald, Columbia Radio News. Switching gears now, you may not know this, but the New York Parks Department has an in-house company of puppeteers. Their home is the Swedish cottage Marionette Theater in Central Park. But much like Broadway, this theater has been closed since March 2020. Tomorrow, the puppeteers reopen the theater with a brand new production. Emily Schutz has the story. Anything can happen in a dream. I gotta wake up, wake my way out of here. That was Anything Can Happen in a Dream from Wake Up Daisy, the musical that opens tomorrow morning at the Swedish cottage Marionette Theater. Artistic director Bruce Cannon says that after keeping the production on hold for two years, there's a lot of excitement among the company. Obviously, you know, as uh, collectively we had to go through a lot and we all had to pivot in some way, but I think we're coming out the other side in a wonderful place and I'm thrilled about the show. Kervin Peralta is one of the five puppeteers in this show. He's a longtime member of the company. He joined straight out of college. I mean, for me, this is like my second home. And it's been my second home for 15 years. I mean, I didn't think we were going to be back at all. Peralta says in the two years that the theater was closed, he faced his fair share of struggles. Very early in the pandemic, I caught COVID. And I'm lucky to be here because it was rough. (laughs) The fact that we're going to open, the significance of that, I think, is that there's a sign of hope. The Swedish Cottage Marinette Theater has long been something of a staple for Upper West Side elementary schools, daycare centers, and summer camps. And tomorrow, a new audience will see Wake Up Daisy, which co-author Marcus Stevens describes as an updated Sleeping Beauty, with no non-consensual kissing. Daisy, who is our sort of version of Sleeping Beauty, uh, lives at the at the El Dorado building. It's very New York-centric. Um, Central Park plays a, a huge role in the show. This morning in the theater, the final dress rehearsal was underway. Five puppeteers stood on a bridge above the stage, controlling the marinette choreography in time with the music. Actress Sarah Cheatham voices Daisy. In this modern retelling of Sleeping Beauty, she's not just asleep for her entire story. Rather than waiting for Prince Charming, she says, Daisy is a master of her fate. That's so empowering for young girls, and I'm just so grateful to be a part of that story. Puppeteer Kevin Peralta says their most important job is to inspire young audiences. It's, it's a great impact because in some instances, we are the first performance that a child ever sees that is ever exposed to theater. So I know that that is a great responsibility I have. 
and um, I'm honored. Tomorrow's opening performance of Wake Up Daisy is already sold out, but there's plenty of time to catch the show. The run continues through this year and into 2023. Emily Schutz, Columbia Radio News. Now, here's the first in our running commentary series. David Newtown shares his struggle with sexuality and with self-acceptance. When I was 13, I realized I liked a boy. His name was Tristan. He had big hands and played football for our eighth grade team. I was tall and nerdy and didn't really like sports. He was kind and liked to give hugs. I never told him I liked receiving them. I didn't want to be gay. I remember any time I saw a gay person on a screen, their gayness was a spectacle. At recess, people would throw around gay as an insult. Guys would gossip in the way eighth grade guys do, with snark and dripping disdain. I wanted to be liked, and I wanted to hide any part of myself that would jeopardize that. I wasn't afraid of being disowned by my parents. They were English professors, and we listened to NPR every morning. (laughs) But my mom would often daydream about the kids I'd have someday. I feared disappointing them, of not fulfilling the future they wanted for me. So I decided I could bottle up my feelings and be the son I thought they wanted. When I was 16, I realized I liked a boy. His name was John. He was the concertmaster of our orchestra, the goalie for our soccer team. We went on a spring break trip to Italy, and our teacher asked me to room with him and his friends. I had an even-keeled personality, she said. I tempered them out. The second night of the trip, people snuck out to the roof of our hotel. The hours turned until just John and I remained. I watched him smoke his cigarettes, and we shared the last of a bottle of wine under the stars. He told me the pressures he was under. He told me his fears, his hopes, and every one of his dreams. I listened quietly. A few weeks later, a girl asked me out the day before the big spring fair. Here was the answer to my problem. If I started dating Sarah Beth, I didn't need to worry about John. The next day, I tried to avoid her, but she found me and slipped her hand in mine. When I could, I stole away and found John. Do you remember when you told me your fears? When you told me your hopes and dreams? He nodded. I think I like someone, a guy. That guy is you. He smiled. Thank you for telling me. I'm straight, but I have some gay friends. You don't have to worry. You're still my friend. I went back to Sarah Beth and slipped my hand in hers. We didn't last. I ran off to college in New York City and took advantage of the distance from everyone who knew me before. I still kept the fact I now dated men a secret from my friends and family. I think I didn't want to destroy whatever perception they had of me in their heads. Then when I was 19, I met Chris. We met online and agreed to meet for coffee. We took a walk in Riverside Park and afternoon slid into evening. When we kissed, I suddenly had a feeling I had never had before. I could imagine being happy and I realized my happiness was more important than what anyone thought of me. Now it's six years later, and we're still together. My parents ask about Chris whenever I call home. That's it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Our executive producer today was Chantel Destra. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer David Newtown. Director Clara Sophia Daly coordinated our studio production with Linnea Arden and Clara Grunick. Our web editor and assistant producer, Kelly Candidate, got this stream live to the web. Rebecca Robinson delivered our local newscast, and David Marquez presented national and international news. 
senior editor Sarah Yukobaitis and assistant editor Elliot Chaparelli led our copy team. Day reporters Emily Schutz and Mark Gilchrist brought you the latest on the ground in New York. Our instructors Sally Herships, Robert Smith and Ben Shapiro and Haley Zhao advised our staff. I'm Lucy Grindon. And I'm Julian Abraham. Uptown Radio is live every Thursday at 4. Until next time, you can always find us at uptownradio.org. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thank you so much for listening.